Before we start the show, don't forget you can hear more of our political reporting in NPR One, along with a customized playlist of NPR stories and all your favorite podcasts. Try it out during your holiday travel. We think you will like it. Just search for NPR One, that's O-N-E, on your app store now. I'll sing it. This is Please clap. Hello, Cambridge. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NPR Politics Podcast Live. So, we are here at the First Parish Church in Cambridge, a Unitarian church open to all, just like our podcast. Uh, Bless you all for coming. Also, what you hear right now is a little trap remix of our theme song that I made with some help from Brent Blackman. I hope you like it. I do. It just sounds like it's on repeat. It is on repeat. (laughs) (laughs) So we are here thanks to the Harvard Institute of Politics, who invited us to town in conjunction with their campaign managers conference, which we will talk about a little bit later. Aside from that, this episode will be basically a live version of the one you hear every week, which means we will talk about some of the latest political news, take a few of your questions, and end the show with Can't Let It Go, when we all share something we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. With that, I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So we are... It's all for you, Domenico. As always. That's right. Except... So we are thrilled to be here in Cambridge, and I want to give a big shout-out to our two great member stations here in the Boston area, WBUR and WGBH. I got my start at BUR. Years ago, my start in radio was interning at BUR's On Point with Tom Ashbrook. So shout-out to you folks. And uh, for those of you who, who may or not may or may not know, from time to time I mention my sort of two homes. Uh, my home when I haven't uh, sort of exclusively been on the road is actually here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, I used to work for WBUR as well. Yeah. And I lived in Cambridge for two years. I was a graduate student here. And it was so weird being back with everyone like this week because I was like, oh, there and there, and I used to drink there, and I used to drink there, and I used to... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but it is good to be back. It is good to be back. It's good to be back. All right. To business. So we're going to start with this week's news. Uh, we heard yesterday morning that Donald Trump says he will take steps to remove himself from his businesses as president. Of course, all this information came on Twitter. Uh, Trump wrote, quote... I will be holding a major news conference in New York City with my children on December 15th to discuss the fact that I will be leaving my great business in total in order to fully focus on running the country, in order to, all caps, make America great again. While I am not mandated to do this under the law, I feel it is visually important as president to in no way have a conflict of interest with my various businesses. You know, we've talked before on the podcast about Trump's potential conflicts of interest, real estate deals, licensing deals all over the world. What does he need to say on the 15th to put those concerns to bed, or can he? It will be very hard for him. What he has 
indicated that he would do is that he would turn his business over to his kids. He would, he would get himself out of business operations for the Trump organization. But how do you separate yourself, especially if your kids continue to run the business, how do you separate yourself when your name is on the side of a building, when part of your business is licensing your name and your brand? It's going to be very, very hard unless he fully divests, which means like they sell everything and give it to like a, a, an independent person who would run the investment. But that, that seems highly unlikely. And moreover, if your children are involved in the day-to-day operations, it's really complicated in the case of Donald Trump, where his children have been day-to-day intimately involved in the political decisions as well that he's been making. And there's no legal requirement for him to divest or liquidate or do anything like that because we haven't ever faced this situation before. Um, I think that it will be very interesting to see how it's covered if what happens on the 15th is what we think will happen, which is he says that he'll turn it over to his kids, which is what the idea has been all along, because that's kind of how it works now. And I think that that's going to be kind of a difficult thing for, you know, people who want to see some kind of ethical thing. I'll make one other point. If Chelsea Clinton were still on the board of the Clinton Foundation while Hillary Clinton became president, there would be a howl from the right saying that that's a backdoor way to influence the president. When you have the president-elect and having his children or son-in-law be advisors, chief advisors basically in the White House, that's not a backdoor. You're in the front door. And and it was reported today that Ivanka Trump would potentially take on sort of a first lady type role, which would mean that she would be in regular contact with her father Mm -hmm. if she's also running the business, which we don't know at this point. That would be interesting. But like so much of Donald Trump's success with people that supported him was that they thought he was a good businessman and Mm -hmm. they liked that and they liked that skill that he brought and they thought those skills would help make him a good president. So if you believe that, yeah, you see no problem. I agree with, with you. this man keeping his business. I agree with mm-hmm. you because I think so much of what we thought during the campaign, you know, like this would be an optical problem, or this is you know whatever whatever egghead thing we would try to like apply, <laughs> didn't exactly matter because I don't think people really understood the level of support that Donald Trump had among his base and core supporters. And you would hear that though, as Sam says, consistently from voters, you know, and, and you would ask sort of, well, you know, what are you looking for? What do you like about Donald Trump? And it was often that. People People would point to his business experience. I mean, Tam and I were talking about this earlier. Even, frankly, his experience that they saw on The Apprentice was often cited. You know, it's sort of... Um, Everybody uh, watched it. Yeah, as I an did. example of his business, uh, business street cred. And if you think about how, you know, he's talked about this, he said, like, come on. Everybody knew I was a businessman going in. Like, how is this a surprise to anybody? And then at the New York Times, when he talked to them in their, in their on-the-record uh, thing that you could see their Twitter live stream of, he said, look, the brand is hotter than ever. I get it. So either way, I mean, it's going to benefit him. So from a political tactical perspective, one thing that stood out to me that was really interesting about this is that he went out on Twitter in November to say that in December, he's going to have a press conference to provide details about something. And and he gets a great halo effect from that because without any details, you basically hear, I want to do something about this conflict of interest appearance. And for 17 days or whatever the matter is... We're going to be talking about that. He he basically has an inoculation against stories about conflict of interest and, and this sort of halo effect that says he he's concerned about it, he's working on it. Details 
may not matter so much to the broader public by the time you actually get those details. Yeah, and I mean, this is liable to be very overshadowed by whatever Donald Trump tweets next. You know, I was saying earlier that he tweeted this thing. Um, This last past week, he tweeted that if you burn the American flag, you should lose your citizenship. And then before that, he said that millions of people voted illegally. And then before that, there was some other stuff. Hamilton. Hamilton. So like all of this stuff, you know, it overshadows itself, but it also makes this conundrum of how you cover it and how you consume it because it's just nonstop. And whether or not we cover it as news outlets, it's I still mean, there. you all will see it. I mean, this is sort of the constant question of whether or not journalists really cover every single Donald Trump tweet. I mean, does it matter? Because it still will exist. It'll mm-hmm. be in the universe and people will see it. And Donald Trump has, you know, this amazing power now with social media. I mean, not just him, but any politician where they can reach voters directly and sort of send that message. Well, and I think as a news organization, I think a lot of us have to make sure that we understand what our role is in an American democracy. Um, You know, it's our job to try to maintain the boundaries of what is true, what's not true, uh, and, you know, maintain some level of enterprise, too. I mean, we have to be able to burrow into things that we know are important, and we're going to need to, we've been using this phrase around the office a little bit, walk and chew gum. I mean, we're going to need to monitor the tweets. I mean, when the president-elect says that uh, burning a flag uh, should be criminalized, that's news because that is unconstitutional. No matter where you said it. Twitter and personal right. I mean, if he were to if he were to going to go to the microphone and say that, that would be news. If he says it on Twitter, I mean, either way, it's news. But it doesn't mean that we shut off other ways of reporting. And like I've noticed since the election, my Twitter consumption has changed. Like during the campaign season, I was kind of always on it. Folks, if all on Twitter know this, and I was always in it. But to try to make sense of the overwhelming amount of information that Trump is pumping out now, I kind of check in now every few hours and then towards the end of the day try to like make sense of the larger context of it all. But I feel like if you stand at the fire hydrant all day, you're going to get soaked. (laughs) (laughs) It's very hard to drink from a fire hydrant. We're becoming, I think, just also smarter consumers, too, of how the president-elect is using Twitter. I mean, and a lot of journalists have talked about this, that you can sort of notice... Um, And I think that we all ought to be paying attention to this sort of moments of when Donald Trump tweets, are there other news stories that he is trying to deflect from at that moment? I mean, I think that What did he just see on TV that he's tweeting about? I think that we're all becoming sort of smarter consumers of the Twitter behavior. Um, And I think that we'll need to do that uh, sort of as, you know, the presidency goes on. Since we are here for the Harvard, uh, you know, Institute of Politics, we have gotten a chance to talk to a lot of the folks who uh, helped run the campaigns. uh, And, you know, we were just had a side conversation yesterday, Tam and I, with... uh, Paul Manafort, for example, and uh, I was said the chairman of Donald Trump's campaign for a period. Correct. He he basically during the delegate structure, you know, the, when they needed to win delegates, he was brought on to lead that uh, to lead that effort so that he could get enough at the convention. But he also famously had said that it was reported that he didn't want Trump to tweet out the Taco Bowl image. He thought that was a bad idea, right? And there's a lot of things we've gathered at this conference where advisors to Trump thought they were bad ideas, but that the brand was to double down and that he would do that and he kept winning, so it was circular. Anyway, I asked Paul Manafort 
so should he stop tweeting? He goes, should he? <laughs> or he's like, he or, will. So like, you have to figure that out like yeah. as people who are and, advising him. And he, he, he said that it, many, much of it is, I mean, maybe it isn't as purposeful as like, oh, this is on the front page of the New York Times, let's distract. But it could be as purposeful as I am up this morning and if I tweet something, I know that it will show up on my television on Morning Joe in a few minutes. Right. That's some power. There. And he, he said that they are premeditated. He said, look, if it's 3 a.m., that probably wasn't. But 6.30, you can think it's probably premeditated. So, Whether it's a story on the front page of the New York Times, a subject matter on Morning Joe or CNN, that's, there's something else going on, as Trump likes to say. So we have to understand the context in this new yeah. landscape of political understanding of what is actually going on. There's going to be something coming up soon from Donald Trump that is not going to be tweets. Uh, he is doing a victory lap, a thank you tour. It's going to start in Cincinnati, Ohio with Mike Pence. Uh, it's it going to be like a campaign today. Oh, it started today. It's like probably happening right now. We were yeah. doing stuff. Okay. <laughs> also, they were in Indiana today to make this announcement that Carrier, a heating and air conditioning uh, company, is going to keep, according to them, a thousand jobs in Indiana after a deal was struck between Donald Trump and the company. Um, you know the most about this, Asma. What's the deal with this deal? So Carrier is a company that Donald Trump would often speak about on campaign rallies. It became, um, I guess you could say, either a rallying cry or a punching bag. It was a company that was constantly singled out. Uh, it's a company uh, that was going to send about, I think it was somewhere between 1,000 to 2,000 jobs to Mexico from Indianapolis, Indiana. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump announced on Twitter that he was able to have this negotiation with Carrier to keep 1,000 jobs jobs in Indiana. Um, you know, I, I should say, this is in some ways seen as a, a win for Donald Trump. That Donald Trump, you know, singled out this company and look, even before he's technically taken office, he has been able to, quote unquote, save, you know, about a thousand jobs. Um, there's a lot of nuance into how this deal came about, and I think we won't know all the details fully, maybe for some time to come, but, um, you know, in a nutshell, there were certain incentives that were provided by the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, which we should also mention is headed up by the governor of Indiana, known as Mike Pence, also the vice president-elect. And, <laughs> and um, so they provided certain tax incentives. And the other thing that we've, we've begun to hear from um, some reports in the Indiana Business Journal is that Carrier's parent company, United Technologies, has a number of defense contracts. And so all of those were undoubtedly factors in this negotiation. But I mean, the big sort of question for me is, you know, yes, this was a win, you could say, for Donald Trump, but how many of these deals can be struck in states like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania? How often can they be replicated? So, and that's, I mean, unquestionably, it's a short-term win for Donald Trump, but long-term, it raises questions about economic policy and whether or not you can govern as president by, you know, using levers of the federal government to, to sort of micromanage how companies operate. Now, it's funny that we're talking about this as a Republican, because you also heard the phrase post-ideological uh, at, at this conference from a lot of uh, people who worked on Trump's campaign because of this issue of trade. You know, it's funny. Bernie Sanders put out a very similar uh, prescription <laughs> for how this should go down in saying you should hold those federal contracts over their head. Don't let, don't let that go to Mexico. And he would do that with every company, right? That's pretty onerous for a president to do over and over again. And economic policy-wise, experts, whatever they know, uh, say that that's probably tough to do. And 
unlikely to be good economic policy. You know, I cracked up last night because the I'm doing my final tweet check before I went to bed. And uh, <laughs> that's Trump, healthy. It's not. But like, <laughs> but but I cracked up because Trump had tweeted out I think at like 10:48 like they will sell many air conditioners. But they don't was, do that, right? And I was like, first of all, it was just hilarious. So then the next tweet I saw was from someone who said that that plant actually makes furnaces. But, but, Hot again, air, cold but, air, but again, but details. Again, right, taking it too literally because to Asma's point about like the feeling, like for his supporters, it's like, yeah. who cares? Air yeah. conditioners, furnaces, yada, yada, a thousand jobs, who cares? Right? All right. Where are we now? Oh. Cabinet lightning round. There have been a few more cabinet positions uh, named this week. Y'all know the list. Elaine Chow for Secretary of Transportation. I'll be fast. Yeah, so former Secretary of Labor in the Bush administration, uh, married to Mitch McConnell. She's totally establishment. Like, you want to talk establishment? She is an establishment Republican with a lot of experience in cabinet-level positions. Nice. Okay. Georgia Congressman Tom Price, he'll run Health and Human Services, what about him? He uh, is Mr. Anti-Obamacare. Um, oh. If personnel is policy, then Donald Trump is all in for repeal and maybe replace Obamacare. Yeah. And he was a surgeon, right? Yet he was uh, what orthopedic. kind of orthopedic, orthopedic surgeon. surgeon. Yeah. And I think that's a key, the key point, though, about this as a pick for policy. I mean, if, if you're talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act, there is an infrastructure in place now for this person to do this. When Tom Price will run an, you know, an agency that has 80,000 people. Yeah. Billionaire investor Wilbur Ross for Commerce Secretary. Todd Ricketts is Deputy Commerce Secretary. What's their deal? Super rich dudes. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, Wilbur Ross is sort of more of an industrialist. Uh, Todd Ricketts uh, partially owns the Chicago Cubs. It's a good year for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And my favorite name to say, Steve Mnuchin for Treasury Secretary. Um, he's an investor. He spent 17 years at Goldman Sachs. Uh, now he has his own firm that plays in entertainment, also other investments. Fun fact, he has an executive producer credit on lots of films, including Mad Max Free Road. Yeah. Which I didn't see. This is a really good movie. So Mnuchin to me is really interesting. He was Trump's campaign finance chair. He's also a hedge fund guy. Um, but you know, as Sam, you were saying, the thing that I find really fascinating about him is that he's a guy who spent 17 years at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And in many ways, he is sort of... Well, and his, his dad worked at Goldman Sachs before him. Yeah. He's like a second generation. My question, but, though, is like, how many people have actually worked at Goldman Sachs? Because everyone's worked for them. Apparently, Bannon everybody. worked for them. Like, but, but if oh, you, I see some hands in here. <laughs> but if you saw the way that Donald Trump ran his campaign, you know, Steve is is this guy whose resume is just so polar opposite the populist economic message we heard from Donald Trump throughout this campaign. The other thing that's really interesting about him is he took over um, the now-failed uh, bank IndyMac, which was known as a sort of foreclosure machine. It foreclosed on some, like, 36,000 homes during the time that Steve was in charge of it. And if you haven't, you know, listened yet, there's an amazing story that one of our colleagues, John Idsty, did, where he actually profiles a couple that lost their home um, but also did support Donald Trump. And it's a just sort of an interesting, you know, yeah. um, gut reaction story to sort of yeah. how you understand how yeah. folks vote. Well, um, very interesting. Man. And Asma, you've been fascinated 
just how wealthy this cabinet will be, like in comparison to historical standards. These are, you know, Mitt Romney was running for president and everybody was like, oh, that Mitt Romney, he is too wealthy to understand the people. Um, yeah. And and he's now, so he's like he's, a, he's he's, a he's, poor guy. He's one of those working class white guys they got. <laughs> So the, the Washington Post has, has actually done a story on this, and they uh, are making the argument that this is arguably the wealthiest cabinet in modern history. They compared just Wilbur Ross's um, wealth alone to, I believe, 10 cabinet picks that George W. Bush had. He's single-handedly worth more than them. And sort of are comparing this in what I think is really interesting ways to Andrew Mellon and the sort of era of the robber barons in the 1920s and 30s. Um, again, what I think is so fascinating about all of this is in some ways, if we had seen these cabinet picks for Mitt Romney, I don't know that a lot of folks would be surprised. I think what seems almost counterintuitive in some ways was the very message we heard from Donald Trump throughout this campaign season was a populist economic message that, you know, did hit at bankers like, you know, folks who did work at Goldman Sachs. But so to now yeah. see this is, is really interesting. But isn't the whole point of Trump is that you can be rich and a populist? Yes. True. And uh, you don't have to apologize yes. for being rich. As he was, yes. as he was branded by Corey Lewandowski, the blue collar billionaire. I there love that term. Because the, <laughs> the idea is that you lean into your wealth yeah. and, uh, but I also think we need to like, Stop trying to fit into some kind of like logical, ideolo ideological, <laughs> like how can he pick somebody who is He's like post -ideological. tied to that? That was our like, first mistake. No, right? yeah. no, I mean like the point is like Kellyanne Conway said, He's transactional, folks. Mm -hmm. That's the key thing to understand about him. He will take in, he will listen to a lot of different opposing views. You know, as we've heard over and over again here at the campaign manager's meeting at Harvard, there were a lot of things that they said at this thing about how uh, all through all the controversies, not one person on his team told him he should go through with those controversies. But he did it anyway because it's what he wanted to do. Yeah. So he'll take in the views of this, you know, whatever you want to call it, some people overusing the term team of rivals because he could potentially bring in like a Mitt Romney or even some folks who would criticized him like Nikki Haley to make a UN ambassador. But he will listen to them, but at the end of the day, he's going to be the one who makes the decisions. Quickly, the Democrats, they're still doing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they had a house are leadership you, Are you sure? Uh, allegedly <laughs> People are talking, I don't know um, Nancy Pelosi She uh, is back again as a leader of that party They had a vote Who's going to talk more about that? I guess I will Sure Yeah, so um, there was a vote uh, of the House Democrats And Nancy Pelosi was re-elected as minority leader She had said she was going to get about two-thirds of the vote She ultimately did in this secret ballot vote, get about two-thirds. Uh, the person who challenged her was Tim Ryan. He's a younger congressman from the Youngstown area, uh, which is an area that uh, went heavily for Donald Trump. It in flipped Ohio. from, yeah, in Ohio, that flipped from President Obama to Donald Trump. Um, you know, I think that the Democrats have had a generational challenge for a while, and it seems as though, at least at the moment, uh, that is not changing. Uh, there was this congressman, a Republican congressman, who I think is like 67 years old, and he joked, you know, maybe I should become a Democrat, because then I'd be a young man with a bright future. <laughs> but you know what, though? My whole thing with, like, the age argument is, like, needing to have young people to appeal to young people. Bernie Sanders consistently disproved that theory. So, and I'm also not sure how much of a signal or sign or symbol 
House leadership is for the Democratic Party's strategy four years from now? Democrats are clearly going to do some soul-searching. They need to figure out what their direction of the party is going to be, who the symbols are going to be, who's going to be in charge. No question, Nancy Pelosi has been a strong leader. She was able to guide uh, so many controversial issues in the Obama, uh, you know, Obamacare, Obama administration. I mean, you know, John Boehner used to joke that he was trying to, it was like trying to keep 218 frogs in a wheelbarrow <laughs> to try to get the votes needed. You know, Nancy Pelosi never had those problems. So she knows her caucus. She understands how to get things done. But it's important to, uh, to, to the point of like who your new fresh faces and bench are. I mean, I had been saying before the election, if Hillary Clinton lost, you know, who is the bench? What is the Democratic bench? And I think that Democrats are, they're, they're uncertain about yeah, what, yeah. what that future is. There's two views on this, though. How much do you overlearn the lessons of the last election? You know, Hillary Clinton still won the election by, in the popular vote by two and a half million votes. She lost in the Electoral College by some 100,000 votes or so. But, but also understand that there's a dem the demographics aren't changing. Like, there is this move away, and Republicans were able to squeeze maybe one more out. But how much do you have to overlearn that message? I think it's probably a combo of both. You can't not campaign for uh, rural voters and make your argument. And you can't, like, overlearn it and just decide, you know what, we're going to throw away all the pillars of our party and just be, try to be that. And I also think, you know, the whole Ryan thing, white guy from Ohio, need him to appeal to white voters in those regions— if Barack Obama won those regions, it's not a thing of like having a white guy that has to talk to other white guys. Like these states and these places voted for a man twice whose middle name is Hussein. Who you know what I'm saying? Also, though, was a senator from Illinois, and this has been the critique right. of Nancy Pelosi. She comes from California, from the Bay Area. Easy to say San Francisco liberal because that's what she is. True. Well, <laughs> on that note, before we take a break, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a conference going on that brought us here at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Domenico's already mentioned it a little bit. Um, there are also some folks here from Harvard tonight. Thanks for being such great hosts to us uh, this week. Um, every four years after the presidential election, Harvard invites high-level staff from all the campaigns for president to come and sit around and just talk it out and game out what worked and what did not. Uh, this year, there were a lot because, as you recall, what, the 17 or 8, 17 Republicans were running at one point? Was it 17 or 16? I don't remember. 16. <laughs> they all were there. It was something. It was a um, lot. And was so... We, let's talk about it. I just want to point out and start out and say, like, the session this afternoon where it's like Kellyanne and Lewandowski on one side, and then I'd almost forgotten about Mook this. and everybody else on the Clinton yeah, on the other side. We should describe what this was like. It was it's a, a war. Room. It's and a so conference like, room. It's yeah. like it's a Congress. big conference room. Like it looks like a hearing it was room nasty. in Congress. It was like this conference room, and so like <laughs> Dems on one side, GOP on the other side. Except it was more like Jerry Springer. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know what it was like? It was like the first time the parents meet after the, the like divorce, and one is like hi, and the other's like, what do you mean by hi? What do you mean? So there's. <laughs> And it was just so snippy. And there were three journalists who are asking questions, but really at some point, I mean, the journalists were not asking questions because there were points where, like, the Clinton campaign... And then Kellyanne was like, we won, we won, we won. And then at one point, Jen Palmieri was like, well, I'd rather lose than win the way you won. And everyone's like... And then it there was, was a point so where Kellyanne Conway said, are you really going to say, you know, are you really going to say that we were associated or hanging out, whatever, with, with white supremacists? Say that to my face. And, and Jack Palmieri <laughs> says, yeah, I'll say it to your face. 
it, it was just one of those things that, you know, a couple of reporters and I who, ha I haven't been to this before, but I've reported on what's come out of it. And we just looked at each other and said, this is not what this is supposed to be about. Yep. Like, this is not what's supposed to happen. Like, you're supposed to talk about, you know, the mechanics of the campaign, what the shortcomings were, but it was really too soon, you could tell, for, and, well, for some of And for Team Clinton, I don't think that they were still really raw. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think they yeah. were up to having to talk about this stuff for two days straight well, and I with think the that, other side. But they're also really passionate about, I think, what happened in this election, and they were really mad about it. Yeah. And it wound up just getting, all of the stuff just came up, and, and it was like talking past each other. Like, mm -hmm. you're saying that? I don't think that's even true. That yeah. doesn't happen. What do you mean there's Hillary shaming? That's nonsense. Like, and that was like the gentle part of the I, thing. I also just think that the Trump people came into this thing feeling like they were the outsiders, nobody had ever taken them seriously, and neener, neener, we won. And they did win, and I think even though they had won, the question was more still to, to the Clinton the campaign. Yeah. yeah, so there was so much focus on like, well, how did the Clinton campaign lose this? And the Trump people kept being like, ooh, 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 but we won. <laughs> and also what stood and, out. And, they, and they, like, I think that they, you know, there is a there was an rightfully element throughout so, the campaign, too. rightfully so. Yeah. There was an element throughout the campaign where they felt like they couldn't get any respect. Mm -hmm. um, and yes. and you know, winning is a great way of getting respect. Getting respect. But my thing. So what stood out? There were several things that stood out to me. But the certainty with which Team Trump spoke about an overarching strategy in hindsight seemed a little <laughs> reaching. You know, like. Because the way they were telling it, it was all part of the master plan. Everything made sense. Bam, 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 bam. And like when you read these behind-the-scenes accounts from like the Times, they didn't know they were going to win until they no, won. But not only that, I mean, when they talked about it today, yeah. I mean, like in the earlier panels that were much more chill, like when they had the Republican primary, you know, uh, look back yeah. and the Democratic primary look back, there were some moments, but they were like, okay, cool, you guys played a good game. Like, we get it. Like, that's fine. Like, you know, like there was nastiness, but not too bad. But like, they admitted, look, I don't know, like Lewandowski said, Corey Lewandowski said that uh, when the John McCain thing happened, yeah. he told Trump, pulled him aside, said, that was not a good idea. I think we need to go apologize to John McCain. Uh, that was not, and he thought the campaign was over. And Trump said, I don't care. And he went downstairs and did a 28 minute inter, uh, news conference, doubled down on it. And that verified his authenticity for voters because he had said something controversial and he but stuck then with. and stuck with it, and he continued to do that. He had Lewandowski said he had called his wife and said, five weeks into this thing, it's done." And he was like, "Wow, I can't." He was surprised, and his campaign repeatedly with these controversies was surprised that it that it fueled his his and hardened his base. One of the Republican strategists said that, "Look, this was a pie." Of there were 17 slices of the pie, and <laughs> one person said that a third of it was made of titanium. And it just continued to sort of grow. And, and the, the analogy... <laughs> that was an interesting analogy. The, no, and I've got another one for you. And, and this was my favorite analogy. This is the one that really stuck with me from everything throughout this conference. And it was, um, Dave, is his name Dave Kochel? Dave Kochel, yeah, yeah. So Dave Kochel, he was on the Bush campaign. Um, he described it as, as Donald Trump was like Godzilla going into the power factory. And he keeps stepping on stuff, and stuff keeps blowing up, and there are these explosions, and they only make him more powerful. He said he, he grabbed the third rail, the fourth rail, the fifth rail. <laughs> All the rails. But can I say bigger. one thing about 
I think particularly the final session that I will say did in some ways trouble me when we walked out of it. I, I told Domenico, like, I mean, all year long, I talked to voters. And you got the sense, I think very clearly, that we live in these sort of bifurcated Americas. Maybe there's more than two. Um, and I would often go and visit them a week at a time, you know, a week and say, like, outside of the burbs of Columbus, and then a week in Miami, Florida. And so I, I never saw these two Americas collide. And today, it was like a Trump <laughs> rally and a rally were happening at the same time. And they were talking to each other, and they're like, you're yeah. an idiot. There's and no it was, way that's to true. me, though, it was like a moment, though, of also being really sad because yeah. I felt like I want to believe that after the election that, like, everyone can kind of pick up the pieces and, and sort of understand one another. And sitting here in this room was this moment of, like, real crystallization that, like, wow, yeah. the next four years are going to be really hard. I think the for lesson for me out of it, it's like... Obviously, there need to be a lot of healing conversations happening throughout the country. And what was clear that from today. that panel, it's not going to come from them. Like, the healing's not going to come from either side at the top. It's and they not. weren't ready to heal. Yeah. They just yeah. weren't ready. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I'm so you note. all need to do it in your own lives. <laughs> there you go. Heal yourselves, America. <laughs> all right. Time for a quick break. We'll come back and answer some of your questions. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Listening to the news all week is a duty and an obligation of citizenship, and also sometimes really a pain. Wait, wait, don't tell me the NPR News Quiz is like Advil for the aching mind. Host Peter Sagal and panelists like Alonzo Bowden, PJ O'Rourke, and Paula Poundstone say things on the radio that most people just shout at the radio. You can find Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, back to the show. And we are back. So we now magically have some microphones set up, uh, both in the front and in the back of the room. We want to invite you guys to line up at those microphones. We will take your questions about the podcast, about politics, Sam socks. They're looking um, good tonight. They got red solo cups all over them. And anything else you're curious about. I forgot my ping pong ball. <laughs> um, all right, let's start in the front. And oh, and tell us who you are and something about yourself. Uh, my name is Craig, and I just love the podcast because it really kept me company during the whole election oh, season. Thank you. It felt like I was in uh, hanging out with really good friends or people I wanted to be friends with. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you thank for listening. You. And my question is, at one point in the campaign, there was this conversation about the disparity between the funding of the Trump campaign and the funding of the, of the Clinton campaign. A really big gap, really big difference. In post-election, I haven't heard any discussion about that difference in, in, in the amount of money that was spent by the two teams? And I'm wondering if you have any comments about that. That came up at the conference today. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Clinton campaign spent more money and they raised more money. Um, and the 
Trump folks knew that it was a big deficiency potentially, but they had something else. You know, they had, A, they had the RNC. <laughs> so the RNC kind of suppl supplemented everything that they wound up doing um, in some ways. I mean, they also had some technological stuff that they did, some apps and whatever that the Clinton campaign also did. But it's really tough when you have, if you're the Clinton campaign, and, you know, you can have all the stuff, and people kept saying this over and over again, but candidates really matter. And, and I only say that for, like, it's not that the Clinton team didn't have, or Hillary Clinton didn't have, you know, deep level of support. She did. But Trump, it was easy for them to have a product to sell, to get people to go places and to organize for them, because they had this, such a depth and intensity to that support that Clinton's campaign sort of danced around a little bit, but noted that it was harder for them to kind of get people organized. And he also sucked all of the oxygen out of the room. No, if you, if the panel... Oh, all the earned media that he earned. Yeah, all yeah. the earned media. That was worth a lot of money. Let's go to the back of the room now oh. <laughs> and introduce yourself. Hi, my name's Quinn. Uh, I'm a graduate student in philosophy, and at least for right now, Rubio is right. I make less than a plumber. Um, the, so, give it time, uh, give it time. <laughs> so I was wondering what you all uh, thought about some of the protests outside of the conference yesterday. So a lot of people were there to protest Bannon, who wound up not coming. Um, but part of the argument was, this is a guy who, has, who supports white supremacism, and we shouldn't be condoning his being invited to speak on college campuses. I, so... I don't know that we I even saw Here's the great I thing about, about bubbles. It, and I actually <laughs> saw an old professor of mine from here who's talking about it, and we kind of had the same conclusion. Um, the point of college is to hear all kinds of viewpoints and learn from all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. um, and that is what makes a liberal arts education vital. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, like, we have a different perspective on it because our job is to talk to everybody all of the time, even the ones that we don't like. So this is just, you do it. But you can learn something from anybody, and you should. And also the point of college is to protest. Yes, which is both totally can happen, cool. right? No, both can happen. Both can happen, but, I, like, I, I, I'm not in the business of saying, no, you can't talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, front of the room. Uh, hi, I'm Tom. I'm here with my wife and kids who are super hi. excited to be here. Hi. Yay, thanks for coming. Uh, I have a two-part question. Uh, first part is, uh, do you think that Trump sent Mike Pence to Hamilton to overshadow the Trump U settlement? And secondly, if so, how do you as journalists deal with that kind of masterful media manip manipulation? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't th I, I, I think personally that Pence went to see Hamilton because he wanted to see Hamilton. Who doesn't want to see Hamilton? He thought it was a good show and everyone, you know, I wish I could see Hamilton. I guess I have to be VP to get there. Um, but then there was... I think the tweeting was deliberate to yeah. distract yeah. and to change the conversation slightly. I mean, even if you look at the way Mike Pence responded to that entire interaction, I think was so different then Donald Trump responded to it. And so I'm in that Tamara camp that I think he legitimately wanted to see this extraordinarily popular show. Um, but I do think the tweeting is, I mean, I mentioned that earlier. I think as journalists, there is, uh, you know, we have to become smarter about understanding the context to the tweets. And I think also as news consumers, we have to, the whole country has to start understanding and looking at more than one thing at once. Like yeah. if you know that these are tactics to distract, know that and act accordingly. Also, was Hamilton really that good a guy? 
Like, I don't know. Like, I saw John Adams, and, like, he wasn't that good in John Adams, but now he's a great guy. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> Thank you. Um, back of the room. Uh, my name's Greg, and I'm from Maine originally, but now I live in Somerville. I'm a mechanical Excellent. engineer. And uh, my question is in regards to the potential conflicts of interest of the cabinet members. Um, we're talking about, you were talking about earlier about how wealthy the cabinet members are. Uh, what kind of conflict of interest laws applies to the cabinet members? Uh, and can we expect to see coverage of those potential conflicts of interest over the next few weeks? Um, so more of them do. Um, it, like they're, they're, the rules actually do apply to cabinet members. Uh, many of them will have to uh, turn over their three years of tax returns, not all of them, but many of them will have to turn over three years of tax returns to the Senate committees that are vetting them. Um, I think there are even some requirements that they not have investments in the same way. But it will be very complicated to unwind because, I mean, like, he owns part of the Cubs, for instance. Um, it, it, you know, these cabinet members have way more entanglements and are going to create way more ethical challenges for the White House counsel to police than, than you know, somebody who's been in public life, you know, public service for a very long time. Front of the room. Uh, I'm Ben. I'm hey ben. 11. I find your show a very nice form of analysis plus news. Thank, Thank you, you, Ben. Yeah. Thank you. My, my question was, wh what is Roger Ailes doing? Like, <laughs> is he, is he gonna, good question. might he be like a member of the Trump administration? What? I don't know, I don't know. but I'm impressed that you know who Roger Ailes is. <laughs> he, he'll probably still be some kind of informal advisor, which he's had been through the campaign and wasn't an official advisor, but had helped him with debate prep and stuff. So I'd imagine every now and then if, you know, Trump wants to make a phone call and say, Roger, what do you think I should say? Maybe he'll talk to him. All right, back of the room. Hi. Uh, I'm Terry, and uh, I'm a transplant from suburban Maryland, so a shout-out to uh, the D.C. folks. Yeah. Uh, I have a kind of a journalism question that, that may be a little bit tricky, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Do you guys find at all that the need to uh, maintain your objectivity conflicts with some of your passions and your strong feelings about this stuff, and how do you... Do you think that objectivity can sometimes... The, the need to maintain that appearance of objectivity can get in the way with your calling of balls and strikes and maybe speaking in terms that are as strong as you want to speak about some of these issues. Domenico. So I'll answer this because I, and watch out for the soapbox, but uh, the fact- We don't that, have a lot of time. <laughs> fact of the matter is, uh, everybody is passionate about things in very different ways. Journalists are passionate about, uh, less passionate about issues specifically than we are about the truth, yes. um, than we are about getting all the context and bringing up each side's strongest argument and you make sure that the strongest arguments on both sides is in your piece and that nobody can look at the product that you have and you work with your editor. Editors are really important. Um, I say as the editor. As the editor. <laughs> <laughs> You are so important to as, me, As the editor, I think if I write a piece, an editor is really important to look at my stuff um, and give me the proper context. Can so I, add, I think that's important. Can I add one quick thing? So I think the, the unusual thing we saw in this election cycle that I think has posed a really unique challenge has been 
the disregard for facts. That's true. And that is hard <laughs> because I think what Domenico is saying is we, we search for truth. Um, and something came up at the conference today where I think it was Corey Lewandowski um, made a sort of remark that, you know, X percentage of the news stories in the Washington Post are f not factually he correct. He could go through them every single day and pick out the ones that aren't factual. And I was like muttering under my breath, not true. That, that's like, hard. That, just, that's just not. Or I mean, maybe the based Post, on leaks from their campaign. I mean, but that's the thing. Well, the Washington Post has like a series of, I mean, really extraordinary journalists and editors who are fact-checking things, who are working. I mean, and right. I think that that sort of disregard for the quest for truth is a struggle, and I think it will remain a struggle for a lot of us journalists. I think the only thing we can do, which you know, editors, including the editor of the Washington Post, has said, is like do our job. And I also think some of like what I hear in your question, and I'll hear from folks online, it's the general kind of people saying to us, "Why aren't you yelling? Why aren't you louder?" Um, people we're want we're labeling. <laughs> yeah, we're very but polite. But, but also though, like this year. Everybody's yelling. Yeah. We don't need more yelling. If we yell too, he won't hear us. You know, True. like, so I think more than ever in a society, in a country that has become more polarized, there need to be folks trying to not. I'll just say growing up in an Italian household that got very, very loud, usually the one who was like quietest actually got to be heard. So I'm just yeah. saying. Well, the, because you knew you were in trouble when somebody got really quiet. Well, that's true. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take some privilege here, uh, and I am going to say that we, we only have time for two more questions, and I would like, sorry, to take questions from the woman in the front of the front and the woman in the back of the front. <laughs> so I'm sorry, everyone else, um, but we still love you guys only too. so much time. Oh, I think this second questioner has to sit down. <laughs> All right. Nice shirt. <laughs> I love it. So her shirt says. That's amazing. Her shirt. Her shirt says Sam Sanders 2020, and on the back it says any questions, <laughs> which is amazing. That's amazing. Thank you. Sam is blushing. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Uh, hi there, I'm Jenny. I work in a history museum, um, so care about history a lot, politics. Um, you guys kept me sane um, during the election, so thank, thank you. you for that. And um, I've indoctrinated my 10-month-old son um, with the NPR Politics Podcast constantly. <laughs> I'm working at it. Um, so there's been a lot of criticism of the media generally um, throughout this campaign and then since the election. Um, looking back, is there anything that you guys wish you had done differently? As I, I've said this a few times since the election, I think that I and lots of other journalists miscalculated the um, unenthusiastic Democrat in this election. Uh, there were a lot of young voters and a lot of voters of color and a lot of first-time voters that just were never going to check in to Hillary Clinton. And I followed them around when I was following Bernie for a long time. And the assumption was that, oh, they'll come around, they'll come around, they'll come around. But after the election, I talked to some of these folks. And they said, as soon as Hillary got the nomination, I was out. Because I thought it was rigged, I thought it was unfair. And they said nothing she could have done would have gotten them. And I think that was undercovered. And I think it's really hard because we, we don't even look at just public polls, which 538 only does. We talk to private pollsters and we talk to campaign pollsters. And it's like... Everybody missed it, right? But I will say, though, I think that I think what we would change is that grain of salt 
is really important, that things can shift um, and, you know, understanding that, uh, that this was different than 2012. You know, I mean, we knew that Hillary Clinton had a broad, consistent, and shallow lead, which I had said for many months, but that they all, and it all broke in one direction um, in, the, in some of those swing states. So I think grain of salt would be really important looking ahead next time, understanding that you can't be driven by data. I don't think we were, but I think that that's an important grain of salt every time, especially uh, going forward in these next elections. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, a lot of the work that I did was a combination of qualitative and quantitative analysis. So I would look at data a lot and I would look at polls and then decide, hey, we want to talk to like white college educated voters in Colorado. I don't think those stories were ever, I mean, we were talking to real people. We were deciding where to go. Um, but I think it's hard when the data was wrong. I mean, uh, ostensibly, some of the data was wrong. And that makes it really hard because I would never say that I should have exclusively relied on qualitative analysis. Like, I just, I'm too brain-oriented to yeah. think that that's sufficient. The one thing I would say, and I have, like, mentioned this to my editor so many times, is I believe deeply that the stories of, like, voters in communities across the country are the stories that not just us, but every news outlet should be telling yeah. all the time, not just, you know, a year mm -hmm. before the campaign cycle. I, I deeply am, like, so proud of the work that we did in terms of talking to voters all over the country. I think that those stories helped us understand what was happening in different places, and I hope that other news organizations continue to do that work for the next four years yeah, I would and just, beyond. I would just say that... I wish I had spent a little bit more time outside of the bubble um, because I was covering my job. That was a job. My yeah. job. <laughs> job was, that was my job. Child. I was doing my job. I was doing my job. But I, you should explain I the bubble. The bubble is like she's literally in a bubble. I'm Hillary literally Clinton. in a bubble inside a cage, not really out interviewing humans a lot. Not in a cage. Um, and and my other my other regret, hindsight 2020. I wish I had spent a lot more time covering the Trump campaign because well. I'm covering the White House next. <laughs> um, so it would have been good. Well, it, it's still the Trump campaign. He's still having campaign rallies and tweeting all the time. <laughs> campaign never stops. There's still time. All right, next question, and then we've got to get to Can't Let It Go. All right, well, my name's Casey, and I'm a student at Northeastern University in Boston. Um, and my question is about it's also about your roles as reporters versus as individuals engaged in this election. Um, so something I've seen in some of the other political coverage this campaign season has been um, discussion of how journalists should be mitigating the effects of their own political opinions on their reporting. Um, and I've seen some journalists go so far as to say that they wouldn't be voting in the election to try to keep their opinions out of it as much as possible. And so I'm wondering, not in your reporting, but you as individuals, how do you navigate that conflict between you know, what your job requires and, you know, how you felt personally about this election. I think for me, what changed when I began to cover politics is that I had to make a very conscious decision about who I was going to talk politics with, mm -hmm. right? Um, I talk about it a lot with these guys. <laughs> and I talk about it with, like, a handful of very close friends. But mm. I don't, it's, it's not a thing that I just kind of wear on my sleeve anymore, you know? Um, I also think that, like, I have started to talk about politics in the way that I kind of do my work, where I want to ask more questions than make more statements. Um, so when I am engaged and people ask me what I think about politics, I just turn the question back on them. 
no one, no one really cares what we think. They want to know what we know. So, you know, yeah. I, and, and we, we have this thing where we say, well, if we start off with, I think it's probably a bad situation that you're leading yourself into. So it's not our job, you know, like we are professionals and like we have to maintain what our, you know, duty is. Okay. So now it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share something we cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Sam Sanders. All right. I got a good one, I promise. Um, As you know, there have been ongoing protests at Standing Rock uh, over the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, As someone who's kind of covered protests over the last year, it's really interesting to me to see, one, how this is kind of an extension of protests that I've been seeing for the last several years. You know, you went from Occupy to Black Lives Matter to now anti-Trump protests. Like, I feel like we're in this new age of protests, which is really interesting to me, for one. But two, um, even more interesting, are the internal struggles happening at Standing Rock. There are the core of protesters who are native people that are there protesting, and lots of allies have been showing up to help. Uh, But there was an open letter sent out to everyone there basically saying, hey, you newbies, we got some rules here. (laughs) And they basically said, this is Standing Rock, this is not Burning Man, get it together. (laughs) And so- Did they literally say that? And they said, this is not Burning Man, because folks are coming up there like trying to party, right? (laughs) So this guy, John Petronzio, put an open letter on Facebook basically saying, quote, this is not Burning Man or a festival. Do not bring your party at the expense of those people fighting for life and death. Nobody wants to hear your songs with your guitar or drum around the fire. <laughs> it goes on. Unless you are asked to perform, don't do it. <laughs> but just this image of, like, an elder walking to, up to some, like, dude with a man bun and smacking his guitar. It's just been cracking me up for the last several days. So that's what I can't let go. Domenico, what can you not let go of? Well, I can't let go of, we're talking about swatting, I, I can't let go of the cat and mouse game that the Trump campaign and now transition is playing with Mitt Romney. Uh, you know, what is going on there? I'm not totally sure, you know, but the idea that he, you know, Donald Trump would dangle Secretary of State, the most prominent position uh, in the country outside of being president, uh, to his the guy who called him a con man and did everything possible to try to make sure he didn't win and said he wouldn't vote for him, to bring him in and say, you know, I really value what you have to say and I, I want to hear what your views are on all the theaters in the world. And then to have his uh, one of his chief advisors, Kellyanne Conway, go on a Sunday show and say, hiring Mitt Romney would take down, you know, would be a, would, would be a yeah, diss to all Trump yeah. supporters. You're just like, what is going And then you see... This photo. <laughs> the dinner photo. That was Poor just Mitt. priceless. Where they're eating. Your Mitt's face. It was like. Mitt's face was just like. He <laughs> <laughs> was like looking out. And you look like Trump out. right now. Yeah, because Trump was like. Trump was like. And I, <laughs> it's like, how's the toast? <laughs> they were having frog legs. <laughs> so who knows where that's going? Who knows? I'm going to go next, and what I can't let go of is the U.S. Office of Government Ethics, which is usually kind of a quiet, sedate agency. Um, Responsible for the personal financial disclosures, by the way. That's where it is. 
There go you ahead. go. Anyway. And, Fun uh, fact. They uh, took to Twitter this week to troll the president-elect, seemingly. <laughs> it was fascinating. So Donald Trump, of course, as we talked about earlier in the show, tweeted that he was going to make an announcement on the 15th about his business and conflict of interest. And so the U.S. government Office of Government Ethics tweets, at real Donald Trump, brilliant exclamation point, divestiture is good for you, very good for America, exclamation point. Now, he hasn't actually promised divestiture, but they ran with it. <laughs> At real Donald Trump, OGE applauds the, quote, total divestiture decision, bravo, exclamation point. At real Donald Trump, as we discussed with your counsel, divestiture is the way to resolve these conflicts. <laughs> At real Donald Trump, OGE is delighted that you've decided to divest your business. <laughs> right decision! Exclamation point. So there you go. And they delete. They they apparently like those disappeared. And then they and then reappeared. they came back. And then they, and the I mean, we still don't know if anyone like went rogue. Or, well, they, they said, said they didn't, it wasn't right? a hack. It wasn't a hack. And they stand by the tweets. <laughs> yeah. And, and, they, and they had, I mean, we know from these tweets, at least, that they did advise Donald Trump's team Council, that the yeah. only way to do it is divestiture, which is a dramatic step, but what people typically do. Someone needs to go to LinkedIn and search... OGE social media intern. And, <laughs> and figure see, out who it is. See who just updated their resume? <laughs> maybe maybe Trump will like their toughness. Yeah. Asma, your turn. So what I can't let go is the governor who seemingly can't let go. Uh, I don't know if you all have been paying attention to the North Carolina gubernatorial race, but um, so there is a Republican, uh, the current governor, Pat McCrory, and he was being challenged by Roy Cooper. Um, in a nutshell, the election that was now held, what, more than three weeks ago, there's no official winner. Uh, Roy Cooper has declared himself the winner. Uh, he is up by about 10,000 votes, but the Republican has not yet uh, conceded. And uh, as of, I think, today, I saw that there is going to be some sort of recount, at least within Durham County. Durham County is home to a number of African Americans, and there were some questions about voting machines that have broken down, and so as a result, some of those votes were coming in later into the night. Um, but anyhow, I am just amazed that we are, like, literally almost, what, three weeks to a month after the election, and it's just, you know... Hanging on still. So we'll, well see you in there's North Carolina. a lot of recounting happening these days. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <True>. No joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's unlikely any of them will overturn any of the elections. <laughs> Thank you, Domenico, for that fact check. That yes. dose of ice water. That's what I do. <laughs> That's true in okay. real life, too. When you want, like, real talk, you show up at Domenico's desk. <laughs> Everyone walks away with their head down. <laughs> <laughs> he ain't lying. <laughs> okay. We're almost done, but I got one more tidbit uh, for you guys. Some news about the Politics Podcast. Um, this has to do with me and Asma. Um, not tomorrow, not next week, but by the end of January, probably around the inauguration, the two of us will be leaving the Politics Podcast and the Politics team. <laughs> That's fine. Um, 
we both are going on to do different things. Asma, exactly. tell them what you're going to be doing. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned, I, um, my husband, who I think is here somewhere, he uh, has been living in Cambridge relatively solo while I've been on the campaign. <laughs> and um, I am going to be coming back to Boston. I'll be working uh, for WBUR. I'll be spearheading. <laughs> so I... <laughs> Thank you, guys. I'm a big fan of the station, so I'm glad to hear you, <laughs> you all are as well. Um, I'll be spearheading a new biz innovation in tech unit that they are launching. And to be honest, I'm really excited. It's sort of a break from politics for a little while, which um, I sort of think I, I need after this uh, what, year, year and a half of this campaign. I'm also just really excited. I think that Cambridge and Boston at large has a really strong innovation economy. And to me, all year long in the campaign trail, we heard sort of the stories about the economy. And to me, a lot of what we're seeing in the tech sector is kind of the flip side to some of the, the losses in that economic sphere. And so it'll be an exciting new beat. Yeah. And Sam, what are you going to be doing? As for me, um, I will be working on a new podcast with Brent Bachman, our fearless producer. Um, we're trying to make some new stuff. It's not going to be about politics, but it will be fun. And I'm sure it will include a lot of my colleagues and a lot of help from the team behind what we're doing here. So I won't be going away. Um, so that means at some point soon, you're going to continue to hear the entire politics podcast team and me talking about other stuff like weird vines on Twitter or Beyonce or why Drake is awful or whatever, right? Um, but before... Didn't vine go away? It's, yeah, vine it's archived. It's archived. It's archived. Archived. Never forget. Okay. But um, there'll be more thank yous and goodbyes by the time we get to the final episode. But I want to take a quick moment uh, to thank my partner in crime for the last year or so on this podcast, Tamara Keith. Um, uh -huh. In so many ways, we are, we are such different people, and I think that's why it works. Yeah. But consistently, I have been in awe of your diligence, um, your expertise, your knowledge, your dedication, the way you never stop working while raising a child yeah. and looking sharp every day. Um, <laughs> I am consistently in awe of your awesomeness, and I'll miss you a lot. So, there's that. Um, anyway. Now, now I've got the feels. <laughs> so there's that. We're good. I'm going to channel so. Hillary Clinton and not cry. <laughs> so anyway, um, we usually end our live shows with the toast, I bring America beer up on stage. We're in a church today. We're not going to do that. <laughs> they are Unitarian, but they're not that loose with it. Um, so I just want to finish by saying thank you to all all of you guys for listening, for coming out tonight, for consistently supporting us in the work. Um, everyone always says that we helped them get through whatever. You guys helped us get through the last year. Yes. And we appreciate Truly, the support yes. so much. Yes. Totally. Um, on that note, I guess we say goodbye now. Yeah. Thank you guys for coming to our live show. All right, we'll be back in your podcast feed next week. We get so many emails of thanks for the podcast. Those are great, but you can do one better and actually support the podcast by giving to your local public radio station here in Cambridge. That's WBUR and WGBH. 
Those of you listening out in the world, go to npr.org stations, find your local station, and donate. Tell them we sent you. That helps us keep doing this thing that we love to do. And if you've donated already this year, thank you so much for supporting public radio and journalism. Also, quick shout out to folks on the team that you don't see here every day. Um, our amazing producer, my friend and yours, Brent Bachman. Uh, our fearless editors, Shirley Henry, Mathani Maturi, and Beth Donovan. Beth is here. And Beth, back in the day, waited tables at Grindel's Den. Yeah. Um, Which is where we might be. We right might be going there for this. drinks afterward, too. <laughs> also, thanks to our engineers that came up here with us today. Andy Huther and Jay Sizz, they came all the way just to help us get this done. And most importantly, like the one that really makes all the magic happen, our den mother, fact checker, keeper of the list, mender of hearts, Barbara Sprunt. She's right here. Give her a big round of applause. I can't stress how much she keeps us all together. So thank you, Barbara. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Okay.